Thank you for listening to our Spectator podcast. Before you start, I'm happy to announce that we have a new Spectator Christmas subscription offer over the festive period. Subscribe to the Spectator for yourself or for a loved one this Christmas, and you'll receive a copy of the magazine and full online access for £99 for one year. That's £50 off the normal rate. Plus, you'll receive a free bottle of Paul for your troubles. To access the offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash champagne. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the demon dog of American fiction himself, James Elroy, who's here to talk about his new novel, This Storm. James, Mr. Dog, welcome. Oh! Now, I don't trust myself to set out the setup for This Storm without either laying out spoilers or getting myself confused, so maybe I'll ask you for the listeners who haven't read it yet it's a second volume in a sort of earlier LA quartet can you set the scene a little bit say what you know what the book's milieu is what's here's going on? here's what the book is and here's how it stands chronologically within my oeuvre the original LA quartet four novels published between 1987 and 1992 the black dahlia the big nowhere LA confidential and white jazz were set in Los Angeles during the years 1946 to 1958. I followed that up with the Underworld USA trilogy, three big novels set around the world and around America, American tabloid, The Cold 6000, and Bloods Are Over. They covered the years from 58 to 72. Now I've gone back with the second L.A. Quartet. I've taken characters from the first two bodies of work and placed them in Los Angeles during World War II as significantly younger people. The first novel of the second L.A. Quartet is entitled Perfidia. It's L.A. set. It's L.A. in December 1941, the time of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the beginning of the grave injustice of the Japanese internment in America. The novel we're here to discuss, This Storm, is set between New Year's, 41 into 42, through the month of May. And what was it that made you want to go back to take these characters to, you know... I wanted to unify, densify, and beautify my first two bodies of work by writing a companion prequel quartet that would serve to deepen the characters, differentiate the overall action, and densify on a historical level. Hence, when this quartet is completed, a couple of years from now, five years from now, say, I will have written a total of 11 novels that cover L.A., my hometown, America, my country, 31 years, 1941 to 1972. No one has ever done anything like this, and I'm proud of the work I've done. You say densify. I mean, you know, as a trained literary critic, I could tell you, you write very long, complex, big books. What is it that attracts you to doing it that way, to that sort of scope and complexity? I love big pieces of art. I love symphonic 
music. I love the Bruckner symphonies, the Mahler symphonies, the Shostakovich symphonies. I love history, and my great theme is the secret infrastructure of large public events. When I was a kid going to junior high school and reading fiendishly, the books were never big enough, long enough. On my summer vacation, you know, being let out of the prison of school and formal learning when I could be a lazy shithead kid and read all day and into the night, I found precious few books that could take me to this epic place that I wanted to go. I think psychologically what I'm doing is trying to replicate my early reading experience by giving readers around the world what I didn't get as a kid. And the attraction to history, yeah. you know, you put real characters, yeah. historical characters, some of them obscure, some of them well-known. I mean, you know, Orson yeah. Welles comes in a lot yeah. in this one. Yeah. I wonder what you've got against Orson Welles. <laughs> um, I, I can tell you what I got against <laughs> Orson Welles. You want to talk about but, we can no, talk no, about Well, we'll talk minute. about Orson, but in yeah. general, why... Does it attract you to put real people into your books? I mean, is it, does it make, make it harder because you've got to fit around what we do know about them? I grew up in what I would call the freewheeling, egalitarian Los Angeles. Uh, my mother was uh, hard-drinking, good-looking, tall, red-headed, shit-kicking nurse and registered nurse and she would wet nurse alcoholic film stars like Zazu Pitts. My dad, who was uh, much older than my mother, big, big handsome bullshitter who had a 20-inch schlong that all his friends talked about. This is not a kid's whacked out reminiscence of his dad and some trauma of seeing the beast unsheathed. All his friends talked about my old man's wang. It's a, you know, I was a, a tortured, obviously brilliant, but messed up only child. And I loved history, and I loved to read, and the old man taught me to read when I was three and a half. And after my mother's death, I was about 11. My dad said to me, apropos of nothing one day, hey, kid, I fucked Rita Hayworth. Dad, you know, you lie like a rug. You did not fuck Rita Hayworth. Uh, we talked that way to each other, my dad and I. And then, lo and behold, 10 years after my father's death in 65, I saw a Hayworth biography in a bookstore in L.A. And I looked me the old man's name up in index. And, yeah, he was her. It didn't say whether he... Uh, uh, with her, but it he was her business manager in the late 40s around the time of my birth. So there you go. It, it's that kind of L.A. where my dad was an accountant, an uncertified. Glenn Ford used to drop by the pad to drop off papers, and we were semi-poor. I mean, we were lower, at the very best, lower, lower middle class, but my old dad, my dad knew a bunch of, of film people way back when. So L.A. was a homogenous society. It was financially homogenous, egalitarian, oddly inclusive. It was 
racially inclusive in weird ways. My old man had a black friend who was a janitor at Lacan Junior High School who ran a, a crap game for the janitorial guys in the L.A. City school system. And they used to go out and listen to Dixieland jazz and go to the racetrack together. And by and large, you didn't see a lot of old white guys and old black guys hanging out together in L.A. in the 1960s. But, you know, there's there's my old man and Lou the janitor and the crap game man. This was the L.A. that I recall. I had the dirt on Hollywood very, very early. And so did a lot of kids I went to school with. You know, everybody knew about, you know, Rock Hudson's predilection for young men very early. It was not, you know, the big airy revelation of, you know, Rock's got AIDS because he's gay. And you know, we, we knew that shit, you know, way back in the early 60s. So, you know, that's my L.A. And my my two great references points of reference are the Bible, the Lutheran Church, that, that that comprises one, and then Confidential Magazine, because I wanted the dirt, and I still want the dirt, and I got some good dirt at the GQ Man of the Year Awards, which I'll tell you when we're off camera, because it's libelous. Can, yeah, I got the shit. Good. Um, can you... The drift. But you put the, you know, not you've obviously got that kind of gossipy you know, here are the, the stars of stage and screen yeah. drifting in and out of your story and uh, involved in yeah. these things. But you've also got, you know, historical cops, historical, you know, political figures. You've got, you know, what makes you want to weave real people into your tapestry and why this, this period? So- it's, it's, it's reminiscence and it's buried deeply in my unconscious. My parents, who, who divorced in 55 when I was seven, had a, a closet filled with stacks of Life magazine going back to before the war. So I could chart the genesis of the war, the Nazi party, the commies pulling their stuff in Moscow, the Hitler-Stalin pact, the great battles of the war, the Pearl Harbor bombing, the uneasy truce after World War II, government investigating So it's kind of nostalgia in some ways. It's the stuff you... Drew in as a teenager. That's that's still yeah, actually, actually, yeah. actually, actually, actually younger than that. It's just history. History's a blast. It's a blast. Look at. I mean, look at Britain's history. We're you know sitting here in London, and America's history is a blast. And Britain's. I mean, it's the fount of the English language. And we got it secondhand. The Continental Congress damn near voted for German as the, as the American language, and we lucked out and we got English. What can I say? History's a blast. History's a blast. How do you shape, then, this thing you've got? You've got multiple, well, at least three major crime investigations in right. this story. Uh-huh. You've got a huge cast of characters. I mean, to the extent you've got a kind of dramatist persona at the back for handy reference. You, how do you go about shaping something this big? Also something that has to relate to Perfidia before it and in the long run to yeah. LA Confidential and the Black Dahlia yeah. and yeah. the rest of the LA Quartet ahead of it. I write, I write by hand. In fact, I'm computer illiterate. I've never used a computer. I don't have a cell phone. I have a woman who types the manuscripts for me. I have a fax machine. 
I write by hand. I've, I've worked that way since the very beginning, you, you know, low these 40 years ago. I have research material that's compiled for me, fact sheets and chronologies. I, I do not care about absolute factual accuracy. It means nothing to me. I read the research briefs. I have the historical points in mind, and I begin to write out notes. Notes on characters, notes on crime, notes on the social milieu, notes on the politics of the time. And I start putting the plot together. And then I, I go wham, I write jam at the top of a page. And in my own particular shorthand, legible only to me, nobody else sees it, outside of my university archive, I block everything out into chapters. Revolving viewpoints in the storm, Elmer Jackson, Hideo Ishida, Dudley Smith, John Conville. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That same contrapuntal structure through the book's 134 chapters. And then I write it out into formal outline language. Well, that's, that's sort of the first half of the book, isn't it? I mean, the, the structure changes, doesn't it? Because we move on to K and... Yes, Yes, yeah, uh-huh. writing in a diary format. Uh-huh. and But I have the entire story, and I have it typed up, and I take the manuscript to New York, and I see Sonny Mehta and Edward Gastonmeyer, my two editors at Alfred Ekanoff, and we go over it, and I make notes, and I take their notes into consideration. I go home and I write the book. So having a superstructure this minutely detailed it tells me that dramatically, thematically, plot-wise, my book isn't violent. And so having a superstructure, this sound, I know what it will be. These, these outlines, So you're not one of those, the characters tell me what to do, guys. That's a crock of shit. If, if someone tells you the characters are telling me what to do, you know, beware, because what they're really saying is, since the characters don't exist, is they got to a, a dramatic fork in the road. They saw that they had dramatic options, and the one that they took surprised them. Yeah, that's what's behind that old saw. Everything is worked out minutely in advance. Parenthetically, paradoxically, it allows me to live in the individual scenes and make them alive with fabulous business, with great dialogue, because I understand that the superstructure that guides the book and the writing of it is profoundly detailed and inviolate. So I keep conceiving on an epic scale. And does the thematic patterning that goes through the book, because one of the you know, you've said you like symphonic music. This is a book that yeah. contains symphonic music. And there is a sort of musical element to the way that, you know, there's mm-hmm. these are motifs like fire and gold, yes. like these funny little yes. triplets rain. and tri- rain, fire, rain, gold, these triads, these little yeah. triplets, groups of three that are Absolutely. very common. Absolutely. Is that Absolutely. something that comes in afterwards? Is that as you're writing it, you start to well, thread I, those I, through? I understood the symbolism. You know, chaos, storm, this storm. Here, this is very specific. The storm is a shit banal title. This storm is something else. It's the storm of World War II. 
It's the storm of the Japanese internment. It's the storm of fascism and communism, the, the twin totalitarian evils of the last century at loggerheads. But really... Well, they're not really at loggerheads at all. No, yeah. you're right, yeah. But really, you know, as one in their, in their hatred of and desire to elude the wrath of the, you know, of the democratic, you know, the good guys, you know, Britain, America, France, you know, at all. And it's the storm of sedition, of treason, and of the internal private lives of the characters who are libidinized by World War Two. My God, are they libidinized? There's, yeah, there's, yeah. You know, yeah. the bed hopping in that. Is there's, there's a lot of bed hopping in this book. There's a, there's a lot of passionate love affairs. Yeah. And also we should mention this storm is a quote, except it isn't, from W.H. Auden. Can you, because you get through and through yeah, the yeah. book, you have references, this storm, this savaging disaster. There's a line from, okay. Attributed a to a, a fruit poet. Uh, oh, a fruity yes. poet. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's the newspapers talking. Years ago, 40-odd, probably bombed out of my mind, I read a letter that W.H. Auden wrote to his friend Christopher Isherwood. And I remember the words, this savaging disaster in it. And I thought it was one of Auden's, maybe it had something, it was akin to Auden's great anti-war poems like September 1st, 1939 and, and Dance Macabre. But it's not, and I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out the letter. I mean, you know, Auden could be very, very direct, and Auden could be very, very off the mark to the extent that I, I don't understand what his big brain was talking about. So I remember it as something dramatic preceding the words this, you know, the words this savaging disaster. And it wasn't this storm or anything dramatic at all. And it wasn't a poem. It was a letter to Isherwood on the occasion of his birthday. So I added the words this storm. And that runs through as a sort of motif. Yeah. Yeah. And do you let that stuff come through as you're rewriting? Or do, is that sort of in your initial scheme, in your initial notes? I mean, do you think this is, these are the things that I'm going to pick out, the things that are going to kind of thread? and Every... The outline is minutely detailed, but the improvisational quality that I get chapter to chapter is ad hoc, and it can be deployed to its full advantage in a variety of ways, as long as it doesn't violate the the impositions, the, the imposing strictures of the story itself. So, for example, there's a scene where John Conville goes to a party there at the great musician Otto Klemperer's house in the winter of 1942. And there's all kinds of plot essential shit going on. And, but it, it's got a, a wild off the cuff quality as well. All attributable to the outline. Yeah. Also, you, th- that's one of the ones where Orson Welles makes one of his early appearances. Yeah. What, why is Wells so important in the book? Just I've, I've never liked Orson Welles, and I've never liked his movies. I think Citizen Kane's a crock of shit. I don't think it's the great American movie. I think Robert Altman's film Nashville is the great American movie. And 
I always considered Wells a shitbird and a blowhard. I don't like him. I don't dig him. And so I trashed him in the book. And is this- He's dead. He's <laughs> not going to sue me. So, you know, you can can use use your fiction to take revenge on people you don't, historical figures you don't like. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Talk about your style, the close-up stuff. You know, it's, reading a James Elroy novel is like reading nobody else. It's, it's kind of almost sort of physical, boom, 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 very, very short sentences. As I say, sometimes in, they seem to come in little bursts of three. I mean, are, are you aiming for a particular effect on the reader? Was what... How did you arrive at this? I mean, someone, I think it's been described as being so hard-boiled it leaves scorch marks on the pan. These are old, old, these are old, old lines. And, and the, the short sentence style was taken to, you know, some extreme in the third person first in the black, not the black, uh, L.A. Confidential, in the first person of white jazz, and then the Cold 6000, again in the third person. But there is an expansion of the style in my three most recent novels, Bloods Are Over, Perfidia, and This Storm. The text, the textual quality, the level of description has been expanded. There, There is no extreme truncation of individual sentences, but they are deliciously direct and to the point, the style has been expanded to accommodate my greater emphasis on the emotional, moral lives, spiritual lives of my characters. And speaking of the emotional, moral, spiritual lives of your characters, I mean, a kind of, if you like, naive objection to your books would be, I can't find a character to sympathize with them. You know, the characters in, in here... I mean, the only character who's really kind of pure of heart in this is Buzz Meeks' pet scorpion. Um, <laughs> you know, how do you feel towards your characters? Because they're all, you know, even the supposedly good ones are, you know, running a racket on the side or... I, I love I love these characters. There's the real life vice cop, Elmer Jackson, who has created the call girl. And I have played hell with the actual chronology of Elmer's life and... That's the way it goes. I find him sympathetic. I find Hideo Ishida, you know, the tortured Japanese homosexual who is beset by sexual demons, who is running from the Japanese internment. I find him entirely empathetic. And ditto Joan Conville. And Kay Lake is, is heroic. She's a heroic young woman. She's certainly reckless and eroticized, but she's jazzy. She's funny. She's, you know, got a Carol Lombard kind of wit. She dresses well. She's a gas. I mean, you know, my wife, Helen Canode, the novelist herself, is and easily the most brilliant person I've ever met. He thinks that the two great women characters of fiction in the past 50 years are Kay Lake and John le Carre's Charlie from what, what Helen, I believe, is his greatest novel, The Little Drummer Girl. And that's, you know, that's a compliment. And Kay writes in, the, in a first-person diary format, and she is the overall hero. She's 
of the second delay quartet. And a woman and a 22-year-old untested dilettante, really. And at the other end of it, you've got Dudley. Uh, Not cuddly Dudley. <laughs> this is the first time we've really gone into Dudley Smith's brain now, haven't we? Haven't we? I mean, we're he he in features him. in the second LA quartet, but we're really in his... Well, he's in... He's in The Big Nowhere... I like Confidential and White Jazz in the first quartet. Now we have him as a younger man, a police officer and an army intelligence officer in Mexico during the early days of World War II. And he's younger. And he's we see the extent of his evil. And he is the anti-hero of both Perfidia and this storm. He's a tortured Irish immigrant brought over from Ireland in the in the 1920s. He was a, a boy killer for the Irish citizens' army. He's militantly Catholic and an Irish nationalist and uh, an, an emerging fascist in this storm. And do you find that, you know, the devil has all the best tunes, that the, the writing Dudley is, is the great pleasure, is the sort of energizing thing, or is it... K is the writing K was the, the great pleasure, you know, and Elmer. And then keeping the reins on Hideo Ishida was 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 quite a narrative task. He's the least effusive of all the characters and he keeps his cards you know held in close to the vest. But Dudley has a fantasy wolf that you have commented on that he talks to. And Hideo has his man camera, doesn't he? He has the man. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. These are these are people. These are very, very compromised, brilliant men. Dudley Smith and Hideo Ishida, who are quite deep friends, and Hideo is in, very obviously in love with Dudley, and they have devices with which they mediate the world. And I'm the same way. I mean, I have a lot of talking dogs I talk to, and they talk back to me. Do you see your kind of writing as being an investigation into morality. You've talked about Dudley as being, you know, evil. Yeah. And religion is important to, I mean, I think both Kay and Joan, who formed this unlikely alliance, they're both, mm -hmm. I think, described as prairie Protestants mm -hmm. here and there. Yeah. You know, Bill Parker's a tortured Catholic. Yeah. I mean, I understand you're, you're a Lutheran yourself, I'm a Christian. Right? I'm, a, Christian? I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, but yeah. I, I mean, is yeah. there a sort of Christian project? Is your your yeah, beliefs? Does it inform what you're doing? Yes, yes. And and it's the it's the compromised redemptions that the people or that the people work toward at a time in American history when religious affiliation was was key, and there was enmity to the to toward those of other faiths, and there was interfaith enmity, Catholics and Protestants in the United States. It came to a rather small head and burst during the 1960 election when the Catholic John Kennedy was elected, and it proved to be a, a paper tiger in the, in the 60 campaign. Nevertheless, I, I recall the division, and my heroic people, and William H. Parker is one of them, Kay Lake, Elmer Lake, they scrabble 
toward a very, very tenuous redemption. It's a very Christian ideal. And in the end, they are responsible for their sins, as I believe we all are. And even though these books are not noir, film noir, Roman noir, they they take place during that era, and there's a flip way of saying what the great theme of noir is. You're fucked. Hey, malign fate will get you. You meet a woman, and you know before you know it, you're in the sack, and she says, oh, baby, by the way, will you kiss kill my husband? And what are you going to do? Because she'll turn off the woof-woof. If you say no, you kill a husband, and then six months later, you're in the gas chamber at San Quentin Prison. That's a flip way of looking at it, but I prefer to think of the great theme of crime fiction as the consequences of sin, and that's a very Christian idea. Is is there anything providential in the work? I mean, do you see the, you know, people are responsible for the consequences of their sin, but is the guiding hand of an almighty shaping the plot? Or is this a kind of... It, it, it is, since I'm the guy that wrote the, that wrote the book. <laughs> you are yeah, that yeah. And I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the man of faith you know, in, this, in this whole enterprise. No, you know, free, free will exists in people, and it, it's when they accede to the rule of, of God's law that they're able to change their lives. You were saying, this, I mean, you refer to this as kind of crime fiction. Are you happy to be labeled crime fiction? Do you think of yourself as a crime writer, if I remember yeah, but yeah, with 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 some abridgments of that. Look at the scope of the book. Really, they're historical novels and political novels. But my basis in reading is crime fiction, and it's the one thing I know. I know the crime novel. The crime novel is an entity. I know it very well, and. It's the personal ambition that I have, the ambition to be big, that informs these books and that takes them outside the outside the the whole parade of crime books, which tend to be smaller and generic, and easier books to read, less ambitious books physically. Yeah, Do you, you've said occasionally in interviews you think there's a case that can be made that you are the greatest American crime writer. Oh yeah, I think that's been proven. Yeah. Did you did you always think that? Do you think you or were you always that, or have you become? I mean, you know, when did you go? Actually, I am this good. When I finished the LA Quartet, yeah, yeah, I knew there was nobody like me, and there's not. Yeah. Is there anyone you learned from along the way? Oh yeah, oh yes, Joseph Wambaugh, the Los Angeles policeman turned novelist and his his early novels of uh, cops on the LA streets the new centurions the blue knight the choir boys his nonfiction book the onion fields uh, they got me to they got me to change my life they made me ashamed of the the slothful shitty life that i was leading and it was a great internal look at the los angeles police department I love the LAPD. Uh, I, I will I will state for the record that LAPD kicked my ass on three notable occasions and helped put me on the straight and narrow. And I like a good shit kicking police department. And there's Joe Wamba. 
there's some odd individual books, and there's there's three that come to mind that impressed me as great works of social history with crime stories. The first one, which was published in 1956, was Meyer Levin's novel, Compulsion about the Leopold Loeb murder, Chicago in 1924. It's a great story of affluent Jewish American life in the 1920s and the story of their horrible, you know, thrill killing of Bobby Franks. There's a lot of jive boo hoo. Uh, the Clarence Darrow, who defended the boy, is called Jonathan Wilk in the novel, and he, you know, puts out courtroom boo hoo and gets the judge to uh, sentence the two kids to life imprisonment. I thought they should have fried. I thought they should have burned for it. It was a vicious, vicious crime, and they were sentient adults. They should have burned. It was death by hanging then, and they deserved the noose. You're quite happy with the death penalty. Oh, yeah, I love the, I love the death penalty. It's not injudiciously used in America, by the way. Don't let anybody tell you that that's the case. Moving along, there's John Gregory Dunn's 1977 novel, True Confessions, and Mr. Dunn lived, you know, rest in peace, uh, and he was the, the husband of the still very much alive writer, John Didion. He wrote True Confessions. It's the Black Dahlia case, the young woman found Chopnaff, the vacant lot at 39th and Norton in Los Angeles. But it's a phantasmagorical post-war L.A. and an Irish Catholic L.A. that's entirely of Mr. Dunn's invention. I'm not Irish, I'm not Catholic, and I know nothing about the inner workings of the Catholic Church. I do know a lot about the Los Angeles Police Department in the 40s, and he adheres, Mr. Dunn does, factually, very well. But then he digresses, and even he admits to distortions in geography and chronology in the book. And thank God he didn't call this murder case the Black Dahlia and adhere more to the true facts of the case because it opened the door for me to write a very different book 10 years later. The most influential single novel that I've ever read was Libra by Don DeLillo, his great novel of the Kennedy assassination seen largely through the eyes of Lee Harvey Oswald. And Mr. DeLillo's book inspired my entire Underworld USA trilogy. You talk about the LA police kicking your ass and helping to get you straight. And you've written in My Dark Places about, you know, the period of your life when you were very much, mm-hmm. you know, in the grip of addictions. I, I've still, you know, I read that book maybe 15, 20 years ago, and I still remember you're describing eating the wadding out of benzedrine inhalers and yeah, thinking, exactly. oh, that's, a, that's a low point to arrive at. You recovered, I think you've written using 12-step program mm-hmm. to get recovery from addiction. Your characters in these, these novels, they are constantly boozing. They're constantly, you know, hopped up on bennies and terp. I have to look up what <laughs> terp was. I mean, I don't yeah. think they even Turp- have it. Yeah, terp- terpenhydrate is um, a bronchial uh, clearer and it will get you zonked out of your gourd. It was also used to detoxify alcoholics and ease them through the, the pain of withdrawal. And 
I it can be it can be consumed in pills and it can be, you know, drunk as as well. And I used to get it from the old geezers and the alcoholic wards at the veterans hospital in West LA. I have some first hand experience with Terp. And so is you know, for for a recovering recovered yeah. addict is this like what they sometimes call in the fellowship euphoric recall or yeah, yeah, boy, you hit it right on the head. I'd have said a euphoric recall sometime in the next five minutes if you hadn't brought it up. Cops, it's an alcoholic culture. America in the early days of World War II, Los Angeles, the epicenter of the Japanese internment, the epicenter of defense industries on the West Coast, under constant threat of Japanese sea and air attack. People were scared. People were having lots of sex. They were staying indoors. They were going to nightclubs. They were drinking. Tomorrow might not come. You want to look at a at a bunch of good-looking, chain-smoking booze hounds. Look at party shots, restaurant shots of home front America during World War II. You know, these people are on the road to dissipation. But Elmer Jackson is 29. Joan Conville is 25. Yeah, they're young, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're, really young. Yeah, they're young. Kay Lake is 22. Yeah. And yes, this is euphoric recall. I concede. <laughs> to what extent... Would you say, I mean, there's a sense that your novels take place in something I think of as Elroy land. You know, there yeah. is this, this world. It's quite stylized, yeah. would you say. I mean, it's a sort of stylized, heightened yeah. version of the real world. And there's a line you use that's sort of nihilistic bonhomie. Yeah. Do you see Elroy land as something that bears a direct relation to history? Or is it a kind of riff in the way that, say, I don't know, Frank Miller's Sin City is a riff on... Well, Frank Miller's Sin City is 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 pastiche parody and, and satire, and, and my books never stoop to that. It's it's a secret world, and in the wake of my mother's nineteen fifty eight murder, I started seeing a secret world out there. It it was an unconscious viewing of more than anything else, sex. There was a gag line of the time, and it was, I want to find the guy who invented sex and ask him what he's working on now. And I think I think that says it. And you're a little 10, 11, 12-year-old kid coming of age on the cusp of Jack Kennedy and beatniks and good-looking, long-haired women in tight turtlenecks snapping their fingers at, at beatnik jazz clubs and foreign movies by directors such as Bergman and Fellini showing the, the sexually disenfranchised people subsumed by, by ennui and nihilistic bonhomie. And I was just on it like a pig on shit with my little kid antennae. I mean, I was peeping windows and looking at girls when I was 11 and 12. And, you know, I'm a classic case of the, you know, of the passive, creepy, crawly kid sneak thief 
a danger to no one but himself. Horny, love-starved. A bookworm at heart. That's what Helen says I am now. Elroy, you're a bookworm. And all you want to do is, you know, stick your snout in in detective novels. And and, and she's right. And, And that's the... That's the peculiar form of male isolation that I bring to the writing of these books. And the crime novel of the 20th century and crime, crime, crime fiction of the 20th century is largely the story of male alienation and isolation. But I dramatize it. Because in reality, male isolation and alienation largely results in mawkish self-pity. Raymond Chandler is suffused with a rabid self-pity. There's a lot of self-pity in Ross MacDonald. There's a lot of boo-hoo in crime fiction in general. Uh, Detective fiction in specific, the first person private eye novel, but my characters are comporting with history, so they don't don't have time for that stuff, as self-absorbed as they are. James Elroy, thanks very much for your time. Sam, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us, well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode